Are you a victim crippled by the minotaur in the labyrinth of your mind? Or will you fight your biggest challenges like Theseus and fulfill your potential? My name is Zulfakar and welcome to the Minotaur's Maze. So welcome to the Minotaur's Maze. My guest today is Joshua Lysak, who is the number one ghostwriter in the world. By age 30, he has ghostwritten 65 full-length books in almost that many niches and has copywritten thousands of credibility-building articles, direct response emails, deal-winning proposals, and sold-out launch sales pages in over 100 industries. Through the Best Way course series, Joshua has also taught persuasive writing to over 2,200 students who apply his templates and use his workflows on books, sales pages, blog articles, white papers, proposals, grant requests, pitch decks, tweets, speeches, and more. Clients and students worldwide trust Joshua's one-of-a-kind ability to help them find the best way to say it, then infuse the right tone so it lands, and the right wordplay so it sticks. Joshua, thank you for being here and welcome. It's my pleasure. Stoked to be here with you today on Minotaur's Maze. Brilliant. Uh, I like to kick all of these interviews, all of them, uh, by just having a brief overview of the guest, in this case being you. Um, so just quickly run down, you know, how you started and how you got to where you are today. Yes, yes. <clears throat> so like a lot of people who, who find themselves at the right place at the right time, I did so by accident. Uh, my <laughs> lifelong ambition as a, as a youngster, as a kid, later as a, as a teenager and as a young man was to be a novelist someday. And I would write novels and I would uh, be selling all these books and I'd be doing sequels and spinoff series and 10, 20 books and more. <laughs> well, I got a two book publishing deal when I was 20 years old. And I'm out marketing the books and signing books and taking selfies with fans, you know, all that good stuff. And then something interesting happens. Two people who read my novels um, reached back out to me and said, Joshua, I have wanted to write a book longer than you've been alive. And here you have done it twice. Can you help me finally get mine done? And so my two novels were proof of work, so to speak, that I could write a full book, more than one full book, and that they would be good. And there were two people who read them and said, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. I want you to do this for me. But it's not a not novel, Joshua. It's my life story. It's a memoir. I want it to be interesting and compelling. I start writing it myself and I say, I was born on this date, this year, in this place to these parents. And that sounds really boring. Nobody wants to read that. I want it to be exciting, but I don't know how to do that. And it's really important to me because I'm getting older and I'm thinking about my legacy. And it's not just about wealth. It's about the lessons I'm passing on to the next generation. And I don't have that documented in any meaningful way. And the clock is ticking. Help me. And that's how I became a ghostwriter. And it was from one, one person did the memoir and then they'd recommend it to a friend, recommend it to a friend of theirs. Brilliant. I didn't work with them. And then they recommended a friend of theirs. And it's been going that way for 11 years now. Brilliant. So, so, Obviously, I know you said you, you know you wanted to be a novelist, but the ghostwriting that was simply an accident, and it's just fireballed since there because of obviously what you did and then the recommendations. Exactly, exactly, and I didn't I didn't really have that that uh, drive that I once thought where I would do 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 novels under under or books under my own name because um, once you do it a couple times, 
you don't really have that same urge to do so that you once did. And so it became a lot more fulfilling in multiple ways to write other people's books rather than do it myself. Okay. So, you know, you've, you've, basically answered one of the questions that I had for you later on in, in, in the show uh, by, by saying that. But um, I mean, I'll come back to it, but this might seem like a, a silly question or an obvious question, but I can tell you that there's a lot of people that will not know the answer to this, but what exactly is a ghostwriter in simple terms? Yes. Let's start off with what a ghostwriter is not. Because I, I, we, when we think about any prof- any given profession, we kind of imagine what it's like, like you think of a plumber. Well, you kind of imagine them with a plunger and they're <laughs> fixing a, a clogged toilet, for example, or maybe they're laying pipe, for example, or they're using one of those sticks to unclog a toilet or fix a drain or whatever. Think of an electrician. You imagine them pulling out a panel and seeing the wires and they got the gloves on so someone get shocked. And you think a ghostwriter is, okay, it's someone that you pay to write you something and then you put your name on it and publish it. And you would be wrong <laughs> if that's what you thought of what a ghostwriter is. It's more so a collaborative process. In fact, right. some of the worst ghostwriting in the world is done the way I just described it, where, hey, um, I'd like to order a book about fitness. And then the ghostwriter writes a book about fitness, comes back to you. You can't use that book. Not if you were serious about your personal brand, your credibility and the authenticity. Mm-hmm. You have to walk through your ideas and your lessons and your stories, experiences and tips, tactics, tricks, techniques for, in order for them to properly grasp what it is that you want to say. But the thing is, you don't need to do the heavy lifting yourself. For most authors, I meet with them once a week for an hour for anywhere from three to five months. And that becomes a significantly less of a time commitment than trying to write it themselves mm-hmm. or hiring an editor to, to work after them. Um, but they know that it's still enough time for them to get me what I need in order to write a book that's in their voice with their writing style, but it's the proper structure, which is what a, a ghostwriter really does is they know what the book in their industry is supposed to read like, how mm-hmm. it's supposed to flow from one topic to the next, where you start the book, how you finish it, how you start each chapter, how you finish each chapter. And um, that's just not included in uh, the typical freelance ghostwriter process. They don't, they don't know, you know? And so the, the, the worst way to ghostwrite it is often, I don't know what should be in your book. What do you want to say? <laughs> and then what they end up doing is they record the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is less than ideal ghostwriting, of course. They transcribe the conversation with the author, remove the uhs and the ums, and then okay, you started starting telling that story there and you ended it there. So I guess that's a chapter is where you tell that story. No, that's not how it works. That's a transcript. And there are, there are these uh, companies that, that they, they, they assign you what are, they call scribes, mm-hmm. short for transcribers, whereas what they do is they interview, you transcribe it, uh, you remove the uhs and the ums, kind of like an advanced transcription software like Temi or Rev.com. Mm-hmm. And then they call it a book. Chapter one. Yeah. <laughs> and then wherever you started talking about content for chapter one is where they begin it. You do not need a scribe company for that period. Mm-hmm. You can just turn on speech to text software in Google Docs under chapter one and just start talking uh, and then c- call the uhs and ums yourself. You know, so that's what ghostwriting is not. But true ghostwriting is more like acting in print where you portray the author, you portray the client in their voice with authenticity so that the reader has no reason to believe it's not their words and their story and their lessons. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm really glad, glad you gave that distinction because my, my follow-up question 
to that was going to be you know for the person who's who's hiring a ghostwriter you know is it not cheating that they've getting somebody else to write the book but making out it's them um and i suppose you know you, you've kind of answered that question a little bit with that distinction because um you know i think a lot of people have this idea that a ghostwriter is somebody that just does all the work and then the the, the person who puts their name on it takes all of the credit for it but obviously the the actual process or the process that it should be done is a lot more different and it's obviously as as you described so it's not really cheating um it's just more of a a helpful way of you know for an individual to get their voice out but then structured in a way that makes it more readable and uh, easier to read for obviously the audience and then obviously sell more copies yes yes exactly and that's what you want is somebody who is uh, an insider to the industry, they're an expert on publishing, and they know exactly what works for a book and what doesn't. And so uh, probably 80% of a ghostwriter's job is guiding the author through what not to write about, what not to say, how not to say it. And then of course we replace it with what, with what to say. And I'm a, a big believer in using standard operating procedures, best, practice, best practices, templates even, because those practices, processes, procedures used and adhered to well are indistinguishable from a pure stroke of genius, mm. magic of inspiration, even the muse herself. And so clients will often read what uh, I wrote and they're like, this is the best way to say it. And that of course is why I titled my first course <laughs> in my best way series, the best way to say it, because that's the feedback I'm getting from my author clients uh, and for the last 11 years. Brilliant, brilliant. And so, you know, I'm going to talk more about ghostwriting, but obviously the, the, the theme of this podcast is, is based on, on, on the Greek mythesis and the Minotaur and where the Minotaur is symbolic of, you know, uh, the internal Minotaur, which is fears, um, insecurities, doubts, etc. Um, and then the external Minotaur is, is the challenges and hardships of life. So in that ghostwriting process that you've, you know, just talked about there, what were some of your internal Minotaurs and external Minotaurs that you had to fight to get where you are today yeah so it was around what i'm going to say next the best at any profession are also the best at selling in that profession mm -hmm. yeah meaning those who understand their greatness and what they're capable of doing for clients and consistently provide their clients their service is the easiest sell so talking to someone who is at that level of elite performance, buying from them feels like a breeze. You want to buy from them. You feel disappointed if they won't let you hire them. Mm -hmm. And so everything associated with selling, with customer acquisition, client acquisition, author acquisition, you might say, became preeminent for me as my focus on how to build a ghostwriting business. Because how to sell ghostwriting ultimately leads you to how to provide the best ghostwriting service that you possibly can. And uh, that is advice that applies to any, any industry. And a lot of people are afraid of selling, I think, mm -hmm. because, well, is it really worth it? Am I really worth it? Am I really that good? Well, what if they don't get their money back? And it becomes a, an issue of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mm -hmm. You only need a couple of home run clients that woefully underpaid you before you realize, oh, wow, I'm woefully undercharging. 
And for me, that was, it wasn't even um, a book project. It was a sales letter because I, 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 I ghostwrite a lot that are in br the brand voice or the expert's voice, who's the creator of this course or that program or whatever. And one of the sales letters, the client, um, it was an information product. I think that's relevant as opposed to something that has a 5% or less profit margin. So it's an information product. So it's almost all, you know, profit. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, it was a soft launch to, I think, subscribers of his. So he wasn't even paying for traffic. Um, I charged him 500 us dollars for mm -hmm. the sales, the sales page. It was a long one. I mean, like 2000 words. Right. And casually a few weeks later, he texted me and said, Oh, by the way, Josh, I want to let you know uh, that sales letter you did. Um, we sold all everything we wanted to in an hour, oh. us $200,000. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And it was that moment where I realized, huh, I need to start putting a couple of extra zeros on that price that I uh, am charging. And that, of course, was realizing that I'm not taking money from people. They're not paying me. And it's like, I owe them something. I owe them mm -hmm. a cheap price. Is they're paying for the absolute best. And in any industry, the best is not the cheapest. Mm -hmm. The cheap option breaks. The cheap option doesn't work. The cheap option is unpredictable, you see. And so I realized that by being affordable, by being a discount ghostwriter, what I was doing is I was in no uncertain terms. I was telling potential clients, my writing sucks. It's not going to make you any money. It's cheap. It's quick. It's easy because it's bad. I'm interchangeable with any other freelancer you could find, any other writer you could find on LinkedIn or on Upwork or even on Fiverr. And that's not the message that I wanted to send because that's not the product that I mm -hmm. deliver. And so I realized that for my client's own sake, to to tell them that they can get the absolute best content from me, I have to charge the absolute best prices. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm the most expensive. There's, there's a few other ghostwriters I know that are significantly more expensive than I am, but I'm significantly more expensive than 90, I would say 90 to 95% of other, other professional writers. You know? mm -hmm. and, and I earn more than they do <laughs> because <laughs> my clients earn more than their clients do. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's... A problem that a lot of people have, you know, I, I know a lot of professional, obviously I came from a professional background, you know, even in the legal industry. So I know a lot of lawyers, they're fantastic at what they do. They're top professionals, hard workers, but when it comes to selling, they absolutely suck. And even in this industry, you know, some of the more mediocre lawyers, the average lawyers um, weren't that good at their job, but because they were good at sales, they got all of the clients and the top jobs. Um, so, I mean, that is definitely a, a massive minotaur for a lot of people. Uh, but I suppose the big difference between what you just said and what other people, I suppose, face on a more uh, consistent way is you were convinced that you were the best at what you do. Um, whereas a lot of people are questioning whether they are good enough. So what, what exactly caused you to have that self-confidence? Was it just the feedback that you got from the early days or was it from the, the books that you wrote yourself first or, you know, what caused you to have that 
inner confidence and self-belief that I am the best at this. And therefore I'm getting the results and now I'm going to charge what I'm worth. So it wasn't anything internal. It was external feedback. Okay. It was my, it was authors telling me, Joshua, you're, you're the best ghostwriter I've ever come across. Uh, mm. For almost five years ago, almost five years ago, um, a CEO in Europe uh, reached out to me. We had a conversation. He hired me. And he said, Joshua, I have talked to 300 ghostwriters, including you. Uh, and none of them compare. Wow. That was like, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, that's you have another data point. You have another data point like, Joshua, I've hired 11 ghostwriters and fired 11 ghostwriters prior to you. And you're the one for me. Wow. It is, and that happens a lot, by the way, where I'm the second or maybe third ghostwriter even on a project and the mm -hmm. previous ones have been fired and I look at what they wrote and I understand why. <laughs> and it's usually what they'll do is because they don't know the topic very well at all, they'll go over to Wikipedia or, or dictionary.com and just wholesale copy and paste content from a free online encyclopedia to talk about the author's topic. And so it comes across as elementary and mm -hmm. the author is beside themselves because they can't put out elementary level content fluff mm -hmm. and imagine that it is going to impress their colleagues in the industry. And this is the typical ghostwriter, of course. Mm -hmm. and so when you realize what's average in your industry, you realize how hard it is to find a good one, much less a great one. And then I've had three clients have told me that in no uncertain terms, I am the number one ghostwriter in the world. And that's what I'm being billed as. And so when I say that, I'm simply quoting clients. When I say that my process is the best way to say it, quoting my clients on this. And so I think what you get there is a sort of earned confidence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. versus kind of making it up from within. It's when you realize that you really are as good as your clients say you are, and you see it in dollars and cents. And there was a client that I charged very, very little to, to ghostwrite her book. And in six months, her book sales plus course sales from the book, because I designed the book to upsell the readers directly into the course. She made us $300,000 in six months. Wow. wow. And, uh, what will someone pay to earn $300,000? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. $295,000 maybe? It's just a matter of scale at that point. I'm slightly exaggerating, but it wasn't anywhere near what she paid me. Like yeah. it, was, it was basically free compared to a number like that. And that means if your work is basically free relative to the return on investment, they're not going to take it seriously. They're not mm -hmm. going to value it. And we all know that people who take you seriously, people who value what you do are going to get the best results out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that for my client's own sake, I need to live up to, rather, that's not even it. I need to embrace the standard I've already lived up to. Smashing. I absolutely love that. So talk to us about that process. And obviously, you know, were you just naturally gifted with this or did you have to go through this period of years of working on this? Like, um, you know, people listening to that will be like, great, I'd love to get external validation, but how do I get myself to the level where, I'm getting that feedback. Like, did you go through uh, a process or was it all just natural? Like, just talk to us about that. It really is one case study at a time, one testimony at a time, starting from where you're at. You know, like, let's say there's a fitness trainer. I want to become a fitness trainer. Then what's the absolute minimum? What's the minimum viable testimonial? You have MVP, minimum viable product. Well, think about minimum viable testimonial. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a fitness trainer, what do you need? You probably need four testimonials from people who say, yeah, I 
you know, I gained, you know, 10 pounds of muscle mass and lost 15 pounds of, 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 of fat mass. And now my body mass index is this, I feel better than ever. And look at my blood panels or whatever. Wow. Okay. That's the real deal now. And a lot of times to get your minimum viable testimonials, you will need to hustle. <laughs> There's some people who will, uh, that it might even make sense for you to say, Hey, don't pay me until you get the results. I'm promising. It might make sense to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's people that, that will even say, uh, if I don't get the results then I pay you my fee, that's some serious risk reversal right there. So you have to know you're good if you're going to pull, pull that, pull that off. I know there's a, there are some companies that I know of that, that do a risk reversal that is that powerful and that persuasive, but really what you need a minimum viable testimony is when you're just starting out. So what can, what are you reasonably confident you can deliver in terms of results? Maybe it's not. I can write you a 50,000 word book and orchestrate your book launch so that you earn $100,000 in a week. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something more like, you know, I can get you, you know, I can write you 100 tweets and I can guarantee that one of them is going to get 100 likes and that service is $50. I know I'm like going wild exaggerating here, but <laughs> this is at the very, 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 very beginning. <laughs> You're like, wow, okay, this person is just starting out, but that is, I really can't say no to that. I have absolutely nothing to lose. That should be how your first offer feels to your clients. Wow. Mm -hmm. I have nothing to lose there. I get hundred tweets. I pay 50 bucks for them and they all suck. Well, then I don't have, I just, I don't have 50 bucks and maybe they give me some ideas, for example. But if one of them gets a thousand likes or a hundred likes even maybe is what you're, what you're presenting. Wow. That was cheap. Let's do that again. And so that is the ideal service is one that initially feels like I have nothing to lose. But second of all, the offer should feel like, but if it works, I want to do it again. I want to subscribe to it. I'm going to become a retainer client. That's the best sort of offer for any industry in any space. And I'll say it one more time because that's so important. The best offer when you're starting out, number one, it feels like the client has nothing to lose because it's the promise relative to the cost the ROI is basically guaranteed to be there. And then the second thing is, should they get that ROI and it wildly, wildly succeed, then they'll say, wow, I want to do that again. I want to do that again. I want to resubscribe. That is a two-part offer that is irresistible as an ongoing thing that you can build a real income out of. And it's not, it's not unrealistic to get to US $4,000 a month from that or $5,000 a month consistently, $10,000 a month consistently, because as you're getting results, people want to keep paying you for those results. So you don't have to go out and get a new client over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. So, I mean, I was watching your um, TED talk earlier and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the story there of, you know, how you were working. And then, um, you know, I think it was your boss that said, you're too good for this job. You need to go out and um, become a freelancer. So did you go the freelancing road um, while still having that job or did you quit that job first and then go down the freelancing road? And, and the reason why I'm asking that question is because I, I know a lot of people are, are fed up with their job, but you know uh, they might not be in a position to just go out and quit. But at the same time, they're thinking I don't have enough time to go out and, and have a side hustle kind of thing. So you know, in uh, thinking about people in that situation, like what would be your advice and, and, and how, how did you do it yourself? And, and, and would you encourage people to do it that way or would it be different now you've got a bit more experience? Excellent question. I had been freelancing for a, almost exactly a year and a half. It was a little over a year and a half 
from the time that I began, the time that I went full-time with it. Um, the reason I went full-time with it is because I had proven to that point that I could pick up the occasional gig, the occasional writing gig. Now, it wasn't something like it was like, I wasn't making from freelance writing double my income or even, even I wasn't even getting to one and a half times income. And that's this, but then that's what I say, you know, you need to have at least six months. Like the mm -hmm. ideal apparently is at least six months of you're earning one and a half to two times your salary from your day job before you quit. And that seems pretty wise, honestly, yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're at that level, now it's going to be really hard to get to that point, of course. Um, and this is a hard path. It is very hard. It is much harder than having a day job. It's much harder than the gig economy where you just sign up for an app and deliver stuff on this or that other, other service. But that means that this advice is not going to be for everyone. And that's okay. It's for people who are willing to pay the price of success. I think it was the, 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 the creator of the Dilbert comic strip, um, Scott Adams, who said, find out what the price of success is and then pay it. So what is, what, is, what is success for you and what is its price? Now, for me, that meant I wanted to quit the full-time job as fast as possible to free up my entire day, my entire week, to getting clients. I had had a retainer client, my first retainer client for three months uh, when I quit my full-time job. Mm -hmm. Now, two months later, the retainer client um, I ran into some financial trouble and quit. <laughs> That's not entirely true. He paused, he paused the agreement for, some, I think it was like four or five months mm -hmm. uh, while he got some of his, his books together. But I went from, this is great to, oh no, <laughs> what have I done? But I, well, I, I did have to scramble and I like, well, where do I find clients of mine? Potentially clients. Well, people who have businesses and the businesses need content. Where am I going to find businesses? And so I was going to, I remember there was one day where I went to six business events uh, mm -hmm. locally and I was averaging three to, three to five events a day where, okay, this, this thing's going to be 745. I'm going to go there. This next thing's at nine. Next thing's at 11. Next thing's at one. There's another thing at 115. I'll just check out the thing at one. And maybe if it's not good, I'll go to the one at 115. Wow. And I, I was, I was spending 80% of my day trying to get projects and it worked. It worked. Now, <clears throat> the thing that I probably should have realized sooner, because I did that, what, what I just described there, I did that for two years, from 2013 oh, to 2015, okay. 16 even. So actually more like three years, three and a half years. When I transitioned from networking in person and going to events and trying to meet business people in Chamber of Commerce and this and that <laughs> work networking event and this business owners group and all this other stuff, um, something amazing happened. Mm -hmm. And that amazing thing, yeah. And aside from the echo dot device that's been going off annoyingly, uh, which is why I muted myself. Right. Amazing thing that happened was I thought, what if I stop networking in person and start networking online? Mm -hmm. And the results were both amazing and terrifying. <laughs> terrifying because I began to count the cost of how much wasted time I had talking to people who weren't really qualified. If I could go into a, I could go into a Facebook group and someone would say, hey, I need help with my content. I would reply and they'd say, done, you're hired. All in an hour, an hour and a half. As opposed to driving somewhere, 
for an hour, going there for two hours, talking to someone, talking to that person, following up with four people, setting up meetings, two weeks later, meet with someone. I mean, we're into countless hours to get paid 200 US dollars. <laughs> it just made sense to do this stuff online. Plus, mm-hmm. of course, there's you know, everything people are realizing about the advantages of work from home over local anything is remarkable. Plus, mm-hmm. I found that the clients were, clients were significantly better quality because they were taking the digital space seriously. Yeah. When I, I tweeted yesterday, and it's not an exaggeration, sadly, and many, many people could relate. I tweeted, and this was in 2015. 2015, uh, I was talking to a local business owner. They said, Joshua, we are ready to overhaul our entire online presence. So that means we need to have a new website copy. We need new social media content. We need to have regular blogs coming out. We need to hit all these, these, these keywords. Uh, we need to have new LinkedIn profiles for everyone. And we need a bunch of ads done. And we're really excited for this. I'm like, great. This is going to be a big project. This is going to be amazing. And he said, our budget is US $500. <laughs> and by the way, that, that includes advertising. <laughs> that includes advertising. Wow. Now, um, <clears throat> I took the gig. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was that of necessity? Obviously, it must have been out of necessity. Yes. Yes. At, at the time, it, it, it certainly was. Um, and I was looking at what, like, what, what are my options? And that was I mean, out of a room of, of 10 business owners. And the one person says, yeah, I can pay you for content. Like, well, okay, I'll do everything I can for that. You know, a year, two, a year and a half later, doing that same thing online, the person would say, here's, here's $5,000, here's $15,000, here's $25,000, right? And it's because it's the same problem, the same need meeting, getting content. But the business owners who have an online presence realize how significant content is. Whereas the local business owners mm-hmm. who get foot traffic, who get referrals, content to them is only ever seen by like two people a month. So they valued it at two people a month are going to mm-hmm. see this. Whereas online, if you're, if you're running ads, even if you have a product-based business or a services-based business, well, mm-hmm. shoot, guess what? Um, you need content. If you need a lot of it, you need it yesterday. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and you know, I can, you know, relate to a, a lot of that because in, in the legal industry, I used to do a lot of this online and going there and back. And it is one of the reasons why I hated the, the nine to five career and the nine to five job was the traveling and then being stuck in an office. And, you know, when you transition, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic uh, allowed a lot of people to work from home, but I was lucky enough to work from home as a, as a legal consultant uh, a few years ago. And the first day that I worked from home, that, that just signaled the end of my traditional career because once you have that freedom, it's more the fle- flexibility. I wouldn't even call it freedom because, you know, I'm still doing all of the work, but it's just that flexibility that you have um, from, uh, you know, from working from home, uh, which you don't get by being in an office. And, you know, I know now, you know, a lot of people have experienced that working from home. Um, they've got paid for basically doing nothing with all the schemes. And, and now they've had to go back to the office and they're hating it. They're, they're now feeling trapped and miserable and they're looking for a way out. And obviously because of that, they're looking at online businesses and writing is always something people go to. Um, and I would say a lot of people go for writing because they are shy, they are introverts, and, and they feel that writing is their best avenue to make money without really having to speak to that many people. Um, and 
to be honest, that, that was one of the reasons why I, I, I decided to be a copywriter at one period in time. So now I wanted to be a copywriter because I, I was naturally good at writing um, and I did you know, I, I had a really bad fear of speaking, um, you know, not, not too, too long ago. So I wanted to avoid speaking and I thought I'd become a copywriter, but it's not as simple as that because what, what I found was the writing is probably the, the easiest part of the process. Um, you know, doing the research and the editing is, is a lot more difficult and time consuming, but just because you're good at writing doesn't mean you're good at getting clients and getting sales and you have to develop the confidence and the self-esteem and the communication skills um, to basically approach people to discuss their needs and to get clients and, and I think this is what a lot of people are not realizing so I'm glad you said that this your journey has been very very hard because a lot of people today are being sold this here's an eight-week course on how to start your business and you're going to be profitable within eight weeks and everything's going to be Uh, sunshine and rainbows but in reality that's not how it works so those people that are thinking about leaving their job and starting a a writing business but they're not that comfortable with with speaking and and they're quite shy what is your advice to them on how they should approach this journey from obviously they're currently in their job but they're looking to start a writing gig should they go onto sites like Upwork or a freelancer, or should they start prospecting, or what? What should be their first step in starting this journey? All useful questions. Um, I'll say this: most people are willing to do the hard thing if they know it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. That's nicely put. So <clears throat> we are not willing to do the hard thing, or at least the harder thing, or the hardest thing, if we're not confident it's the right thing to do especially if there's 10 things you could try, one or two of them might work, but you don't have the time, the effort, the energy, or even the money to spend trying all 10 of them to the best that you possibly can. Well, shoot, what do you do? What do you do? That becomes a very difficult question to try to uh, answer. And so what can you do that's going to get you in front of people who need what you do? And that's an open-ended question, but it really is the most useful question. Where are they and how can you get their attention? Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. So, so would you advise them to go onto uh, websites like uh, freelance or work? I mean, uh, the reason I mentioned that is because when I was starting out, this was the, the advice that I was uh, um, getting at the time. But my experience on, on Upwork was, was horrendous. Like, you know, I was pitching for jobs. Um, and then when I finally got one, it was it was twenty dollars, um, and it started off being um, you know uh, I, I can't remember the, how many thousands of words it was, but uh, doing the job itself wasn't that difficult. But it was going back and doing the amendments, and all of a sudden there was no limit on the words, and it just got longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and then by the end of it, I'm like, what was the point of of this the amount of work the amount of time going to the research doing the writing the uh the amendments and at the end of it there's just 20 dollars um, and that just put me off the whole process whereas when you get other clients from from other means like i remember the first time i got paid a thousand dollars for for a copywriting job it was the complete opposite experience because it was um you know uh, an hour or so talking to the client on, on a face-to-face call like this um, and then it's, it took me I already knew the topics so I didn't have to do that much research and 
altogether it probably was about three four hours of work and that that was the opposite feeling it's like is this it is, is that all i have to do like you know I, I'm, I'm used to spending hours and hours and hours weeks and weeks and weeks to making uh, a set salary but this took me a few hours to make a thousand dollars like what is your best advice here is it to go down the the freelancer the, the, the them type of websites or is it to go directly to a client uh, bearing in mind you've got no prior experience of one getting clients and you've not done a a copywriting job before yeah yeah i had a similar experience that that you did where like my very first freelance writing gig that i got in 2011 paid yeah us one dollar and 67 cents an hour which is you know a fraction of a fraction of what the minimum wage for low skilled and no skilled uh, labor is here in the states <laughs> um now i will say this it did teach me something valuable, which was that people would be willing to pay me for writing outside of W-2 employment. W-2 employment, for those not familiar, is like a full-time job where you're salaried or have like an hourly job here, here in the States where um, your employer gets you a paycheck quarterly, weekly, every other week, monthly, that sort of thing. Um, it, was a, it was the first time that I was getting paid directly from the user, the customer, as opposed to from an organization, from a business, from an institution. So that felt gratifying. Did not feel gratifying how much work I did for <laughs> basically nothing, you know, basically nothing. Um, like I pay more in PayPal fees every day and, and processing fees than I would make <laughs> in a year. <laughs> wow. Slight exaggeration there, slight exaggeration. But um, it just shows you how, how far you can go if you keep going. And so one of the worst ways to start your adventure is to be one of millions. <clears throat> I mentioned, go to where you go to where people who need what you do are and get their attention. Yes. Upwork, Fiverr, freelancer, etc., LinkedIn, even that is where your potential clients are, but you cannot get their attention when you're one of possibly dozens yes. or hundreds of people who are pitching a job. Mm -hmm. So they're there, but you can't get their attention. Okay. So then where are they that you could get their attention? Well, they're in private groups. Frankly, that's where they're at. They're in Facebook groups for business owners and entrepreneurs and people in your industry. They're in LinkedIn groups, which are not as active as Facebook groups. There's also private groups associated with different, um, you know, really popular communities. Like, so what are some of the groups that people are members of that you, that you could afford to get into, even if it's, you know, $9 a month or $99 a year or something like that. It's a sort of a, an entry fee to gain access to potential clients. So then how do you get your attention once you're in there? Well, you reach out to the moderator and say, hey, moderator of the group, the founder of the group, the admin and say, hey, I would like to offer some value to this community that I've just recently joined. And then that's when you can do a live video if, if, if you have their permission, you write an article that they could post for the group. You could offer to do free rewrites of stuff. I did this a lot of, time, a lot of the time back in 2016, 2017, where I would go live in someone else's group and spend an hour and a half giving advice on people's book ideas that they have. And even like they would share a writing sample with me and I would work on it there and live in front of everyone. You bet I got clients out of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was willing, I would have to be willing to do it. So it has to do, be those two things. Go where they are and get their attention. And the best way to get their attention is to help them with something that they need to get done anyway. And that's going to be different for everyone, whether it's in coding or whether it's in writing or it's in fitness or it's nutrition or relationship coaching or whatever the case may be, whatever it is your people need, go where they are and offer them a free sample. 
of it. That is that is actually the is, it's hard because you have to be willing yes. to mm-hmm. you have to be willing to do it, but it's the right thing to do. And if you know it's the right thing to do, then it's not so hard anymore. Yeah, and and this comes back to you know the the, the five step process that you talked about in your your tech talk, where the, the first thing is you know you've got to get out of your comfort zone. So um, you know people are in the nine to five jobs typically you know you never have to worry about sales and marketing because you've never really unless you know you're in that department, but um, you know, you don't have to worry about the different components of the business other than your set tasks. Whereas when you're going out on your own, you know, it's not just about the skill that you've got. Yes, you need the skill, but you've got to develop all of these other aspects of the business. Uh, and that means coming out of your comfort zone. And, you know, you are going to have to chase for work. You are going to have to do, uh, you know, free things and, and, and go here and there. And it's not as plain and sailing and easy as, you know, everybody today makes out. Like there is a lot of hard work required to get traction. Um and you know, I suppose you can, a lot of writers, obviously, everybody's different, but um, this generation, especially the millennials, a lot of them are introverts, they're shy. Did you have that issue or were you always confident or did you develop speaking skills? Like obviously, you've done a, a, a TED talk and I mean, that's a, a big thing, but were you ever in the shy introvert category and did you do something to develop that or were you naturally confident and okay with speaking? Uh, I What I've noticed is that people who are ultra famous they always say and it's uncanny how much they say it i've always been such an introvert (laughs) i'm such an introvert you guys oh my god this is what they say okay and even say it like that they're lying of course (laughs) they they want to appear like they've overcome some sort of a personal challenge Mm -hmm. go back to, to go back to when they were 10 years old and they were trying to get seen by anyone and everyone they could they invited their entire neighborhood to their show Okay. These are extreme extroverts we're talking about. Now, in my case, I was homeschooled as a youngster and homeschooling in 2022 looks a lot different than in 1992. Okay. At those days, there were no real cooperatives or pods as they're called nowadays. No like private tutors or parents, you know, swapping one another's kids and they'd all teach one another in like a kind of a spontaneous recreation, like an organic decentralized recreation of a school environment. There wasn't that. There was the books and there was the basement. <laughs> Go down to the basement, read your books, do your schoolwork, you know, eight to eight to four o'clock, you know, every day. Um, and so I had very, very, very little socialization. Um, mm-hmm. And that turned out about as as exactly as you would probably imagine that it would. Um, ridiculously socially awkward uh, experience. Um, further compounded that I later learned that um, I'm on the spectrum, as they say, for, for ASD. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense okay. for everything. But I realized something interesting happened when I went to college for the first time. And this was the first time that I was around a lot of people all at once. <laughs> Strangers, of course. Uh, and that was interesting is I just found people did not make any sense to me. Why are you, why are you this way? Well, this is obvious that you should do it this way. But if you, if you plagiarize, if you plagiarize, you're going to get a failing grade. Why would you do that? You see? So this is how I, I logically thought, thought about it. And I also realized in group projects in college, I was the one who wanted the A, nobody else cared. And they realized I wanted the A. So what did they do? Joshua? You do all I want to make sure I do this right. Can you help me out? <laughs> and that ended up in me doing their work, of course. They understood people better than I did. And they could get, they could, these people could pull a few fast ones on me. 
Um, and eventually I realized, hmm, this is interesting. People are a little, a little different. They're, they're peculiar. And the peculiarity of people led me to learning about the psychology of persuasion, influence, mm -hmm. what motivates the human animal, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> uh, what, what drives us. And so much of that kind of extracurricular study, the books that I read, informs how I write to this day. Mm -hmm. And also how I communicate. Because when you realize that what you say is not what people hear, mm -hmm. you realize that the onus to communicate effectively is on you. Yes. Yeah. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. When you realize that people's perception of you is their reality of you, you realize that we live in a, in a, in a world of alternative facts now. We each mm -hmm. have our own separate realities. The social media bubble means that a study that supports your chosen diet plan is shared widely inside your bubble and never outside of it mm -hmm. and vice versa. Yes. Someone else in another bubble, their scientific studies are shared widely and are known as the gospel truth inside your circle, but no one outside of it will ever hear it. And if they do, what will they say? Oh, that's obviously a BS study. That's obviously not legitimate. That's obvious. Oh, <laughs> look at the sample size. You see, so we, we live on our own little realities. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that, is extremely helpful, not just for myself to relate to people, to get along with people, to communicate with people, um, but also that I can know, generally speaking, what's going on in people's heads. When I gave that TEDx talk, um, it, was, it was probably the, one of my finest works, my finest hours, so to speak, to that point in my life. And I go up there on stage and an introvert, an extremely socially awkward introverted person, and such as I was in my younger days, would be in front of everyone thinking, oh, what are they thinking about? I mean, look at all these people out here. Oh, this is going to be scary. Oh, yeah, you, palms start to get a little, uh, yep. a little damp and you start to feel cold and your heart pounds. You start, your voice shakes a little bit and you get real nervous and then you forget all your lines. Yeah. But put yourself in the audience's seat. Are they sitting there thinking, oh man, this guy better have a great delivery and not forget a line <laughs> or I'm going to be upset. That's what we think they are. Mm -hmm. But when you realize what's actually going through someone's mind, most of the time, they're sitting there thinking, when's this going to be over? Yeah. <laughs> I got to check my text messages. I think I felt my phone buzz. They're not in the room with you at all. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about their phone they're hungry or they're wondering, hey, that cute chick sitting over there. Maybe I should talk to her after this guy's done. <laughs> this is what's happening in their mind. Mm -hmm. The only thing they want from me is to be interesting. To be something that can distract them long enough from their problems. Yeah. And so when you realize that that's what most people want is they want a pleasant distraction. Look at my YouTube videos. Every single one of them is a pleasant distraction. Now, of course, they get people to hire me, but my tweets my Twitter game, my interviews, my TEDx talk, my articles that I write. It's a pleasant distraction from the doldrums of reality. And that is what works. It may not be the thing that goes viral. I've had a few things that have gone viral, so to speak. And, and my TEDx talk has a lot of views. It's like top 10% of views of all mm -hmm. TEDx talks. That's wow. in the tens of thousands. It's not like millions like Simon Sinek. Yeah. You know, those, are, those are the outliers. But most TEDx talks, 500 views, 1,000 views you know, mm -hmm. give a, give a reference, uh, for a reference there. 
But that's what I realized about most people. And that is what got me over the, so, uh, over, over social awkwardness and self-consciousness is people just don't care. Yeah. They're bored, they're miserable, and they're looking for pleasant distraction. So they, they, they re- watch a YouTube video of mine for the same reason that they put on Netflix, pleasant distraction. Beautiful. Absolutely love that. That's a fantastic um, answer. And, you know, as, as somebody who I did have social anxiety and, you know, I, I agree and I relate to all of that. Um, I suppose the biggest problem we've got is, you know, we're, we're too busy thinking everybody's going to be thinking this and everybody's going to be thinking that. Um, and the way I re- reframed it for myself is, you know, that's quite an arrogant thought to have, thinking that you're the center of everyone's attention and they're going to be thinking this and they're going to be thinking that. They just don't care. Um, and, you know, it, it is freeing, but um you know at the same time you still got to take that jump you got to come out of your comfort zone you've just got to do things so you know my way of overcoming this fear was to make these videos online so i just started making videos online then start this podcast and just progress from there and it just has a knock-on effect on everything else um which you know it, it kind of is linked to this but in a little different way so because uh obviously you get a lot of opportunities and there's so much things you can do with video the same applies with with writing and you know uh, sticking to the theme of the minotaur and the maze and the lamp, labyrinth there's just so many different forms of writing uh, and it's a maze in and of itself how would you determine like how did you determine which form of writing is best for you and this is what you want to do um, and you know in, in a way that would help the audience like how should they figure out what form of writing they should pursue because obviously content writing isn't exactly copywriting um, and then you know you've got academic writing there's obviously there's different forms of writing like how would you go about that process of trying to figure out what type of writer you want to be and, and you'd, you'd be the best to get paid for excellent a question with a simple answer which is what type of writing can you generate for your clients that the fastest measurable results from now well, this could be something as simple as you know i write cover letters and for cvs and for resumes and people send them out and they hear back and they get a job. Okay, so I'm the CV writer. That's a, that's a measurable result. It could be, uh, you know, I understand a little bit about SEO. So I write SEO blogs for myself, you know, and then I get, I get some good placement on Twitter or I got a placement on Google and whatnot. And so I can do that for clients too. So that's all I do. And now in my case, ghostwriting books for business owners who want to use the book to generate content, uh, clients who are ready to hire them. They don't have to spend months chasing them again, but they're ready to hire them. They're qualified leads. That is very hard to do that. It's very expensive to do that with traditional advertising. So they want a book to do it for them because a book gives you authority, credibility, and expertise all in one place, all in one marketing asset. And so it just makes sense for them to do that, that way. And I'm the person for that. So I don't, as I was telling you before the call, I don't ghostwrite, you know, tweets and ghostwrite threads and mm-hmm. ghostwrite Facebook posts or ghostwrite ads or that sort of thing. I could, and I have, and I did, but I don't anymore because I want to spend my time and my effort with my clients, giving them the biggest results they can. And that for them is going to be nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely love that. And I'm just conscious of the time. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll wrap up soon, but, um, you know, I read earlier that you, on, on your website, you know, it says that 67% of books you've read from best-selling authors were written by you. How did you, uh, calculate that? Like what was the process in calculating that, that number? There's a few things that go into that. The first of which is that I did not write that. 
Second of which is it's directionally accurate. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is um, I use a tool called Hype Fury Hype for, for like my social media management, like Twitter stuff and whatever. Mm -hmm. So there was a few months ago, Hype Fury said, hey, reply, hey, if you use Hype Fury, reply to this tweet and um, we'll rewrite your bio. I thought, okay, that sounds fun. <laughs> and so the bio you see on Twitter is the bio that Hype Fury's people right. wrote for me. I thought that was hilarious. Um, so I put it on there. Now, it, it turns out that it's not too far away from reality. Many times, so many times I've lost count. I'll be talking to a prospective client, an author, and they'll turn, turn away like to the bookshelf behind them. And then they're like, you know, Joshua, when I think about the book that I want to have, it remind, I think of this book over here. And, and it, I want to look, I just want to show it to you real quick. And then they will pull up a book that I wrote. <laughs> And I can just like smirk, smile, nod, of course. Um, and I've got it now. It's, it's gotten to the point that people, authors will tell me, Joshua, I know we had confidentiality, but I'd like to go ahead and break that because I want people to know that you wrote the book because then uh, people will buy it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I'm at that stage of my, of my career now is that people are buying books, even if it's not like it could be about how to get divorced <laughs> and they can be happily married, but because Joshua Lysik was involved, they buy it. This is where we are at now in our lives. That's fantastic. Uh, and, and yeah. So it's, it's, it's directionally accurate as are the most truthful truths that we know. Brilliant. And, and so just sticking to that point, like obviously you write for different people and in, in their different voices, but is there, you know, would you be able to tell this is a, a book written by you? in the different genres or is it because you know you're so good at what you do and it's it's in the voice of the author that you wouldn't be able to you know is there some is there similarities between the right because the, the reason i asked that is because on twitter now obviously there's there's a ghost writing boom going on in twitter but you've got these different accounts but they all sound the same and you know you, you almost can tell that it's the same person writing the the tweets for yeah. the different accounts you know so you know is there something that would say yeah, this was written by you or are they all different because of the authors? You're right that there are a lot of ghostwriters. It's like, I think in 2017, 2018, everybody was in the drop shipping and then everyone is starting an agency and then everyone is in the affiliate marketing. And then now everyone's in a Twitter ghostwriting. So in a year or so, there will be, there probably, there will be some controversy in which it's revealed that, the same ghostwriter was using identical, if not very, uh, almost like basically plagiarized content across multiple accounts, multiple people. Someone's going to get in trouble. There, you know, a, a, a blue check, a verified influence is going to get, you know, you know, get dragged through it. Then there will be mainstream articles about the deceitfulness of these Twitter ghostwriters and whatnot. And then people will flee from the profession and they'll go to something else. This is what's going to happen. Now, can people recognize what I've written? The voice of them all is different. So when people say, hey, Joshua, can I see some stuff you've, 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 you've written before? Mm -hmm. I will send them four authors' books from four different categories, four different types of people, four, four different ethnicities even. And they'll read them and it's like, yeah, this isn't the same person. It's obviously not the same person. <laughs> well, that's how you know it's good. But I've had a couple of people reach out to me successfully pointing out that they found something that I had written without, without me leading them uh, towards it. Okay. And they said, Joshua, I knew it was you because it was unusually good. <laughs> That's how they described it. By that, they mean it was clear and it was compelling. And it was something that reminded me of you and your tweets. Mm -hmm. 
and so then they like they've sent me they sent me the link to it is this you <laughs> and they and they've been right i think it's happened twice um so far uh, uh, but the, the joke now is around the timeline on twitter particularly if someone says they're writing a book what does that actually mean <laughs> and more often than not they're right that uh, that person hired josh realized to write the book there was a period it was it was absolutely hilarious where three of my clients on twitter the same week talked announced that they're writing a book <laughs> it, it was it was bizarre all three of them i'm writing a book and they all knew each other, which is funny, but they did it independently. Wow. And all three of them. And they, of course, they went like mini viral. Everyone was excited about their book. <laughs> How was that for it you? Was, like, obviously, that's three, three separate projects. And, um, you know, isn't that like yes. time consuming? Like, how do you keep, w- w- I would have thought you'd have done one project at a time. So did you do three projects at once or how did you? Uh, they were slightly staggered with, with one coming up before the next, before the next. Okay. I use a software called ClickUp as a project management tool, mm-hmm. dashboard, place to keep everything tracked, all people on the right timeline, all of the above. Mm-hmm. It's the best thing that I've, uh, I've found for that. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Like the, the time has flown. I did have quite a few more questions, but <laughs> maybe another time. Um, so I just want to thank you for, for, for sharing your wisdom and coming on. Um, and I just want to give you the opportunity, like who is your ideal client and who should be coming to you? Uh, and what can you do for them? And how can they contact you? Yeah, yeah. I was saying a few minutes ago, the ideal, the ideal ghostwriting client for me is someone who is a business owner. So they're, they're looking for high leverage activities, things that they can invest in, things that they can do that are going to get them a lot more of what they want faster. They're willing to pay for it with money, but not necessarily with time of doing it wrong or wasting time or being years and years and years and the thing's still not done. They just want to get it done so they can benefit from it. And they understand that a book uniquely positions them as the go-to expert, the true authority in their industry, in their space, but they don't want to spend five hours a day writing it. They want to hire someone to do that. And so that's, 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 that's person for me. And the best way is to reach out to me on Twitter at Joshua Lysick. DMs are open. Direct messages are open. Hey, Joshua, heard you on the show. I need a book done. Can we talk? Simple as that. Simple as that. And with that, I really enjoyed our, our, our time today. I'm very, very grateful. I want to let you know that I like the Manitour's Maze metaphor as a, as a show um, because it, it tells people what to expect from the mm-hmm. experience versus, hey, the first name, <laughs> last name show. I don't know you. I don't care. You know? <laughs> or, you know, the ultimate success show. Yeah, everyone has a show like that. But you're the first Manitour's Maze show. Appreciate out that. there and the metaphor works well to guide conversations yes well done absolutely. brilliant thank you appreciate that and you know just going on with that metaphor so um you know a lot of go- people might think ghostwriters do this and that in terms of the metaphor the ghostwriter is the the people that will help you on your mission so i, I had that as princess ariadne but you know in life you've got your mission you want to get yourself out there you hire you get help and help here is joshua who does the ghostwriting for you and you know I'd like you just to give a couple of case studies, like what results have you got for people so people understand the power of, of what you provide because it's not just a case of here's a book and you're just going to get some uh, um, exposure. There's, there's real tangible results and these are going to be very lucrative, tangible results. So could you just you know, let us know a couple of those results that you've got and what people can expect by working with you? Yes, every book is designed to be a funnel from a nine, nine, the $9 ebook or the $19.99 sock or paperback to your highest ticket item. And the objective is to shortcut the time it takes from someone to first hear about you to hire you for your biggest bang for the buck for you package, whether that's $10,000 or $100,000. 
Um, and so what the objective of the book is, is to get in front of people. Wow, that sounds like a great title. I want to learn about that. They get into the material. Oh, what's this? They have a website where I can get more mm -hmm. useful tutorials and step-by-step. -step. I'm going to go there. That's where they get the upsell. And maybe it's to a course. And maybe the course. So now they go from buying a $9 ebook to a $99 course. From a $99 course to your $9,000 uh, service. As fast as possible to get them there. Um, I had a client named Andy. I did have a non-disclosure confidentiality agreement with him. But then at the end of the time together, it was a few months after it actually, but he, um, he sent me a video attachment to an email and said, Joshua, you should publish this on YouTube. I put up the video, the, the testimonial. And he spent two and a half minutes raving about the service experience, how awesome it was. And he laid out his ROI of $1 million wow. from, the, from the process, which was just fantastic. Um, other clients yeah. will talk about how you know the process more than pay for itself in the first week, first first two weeks. Now, what I'm laying out here is the power of having a book at the beginning of your funnel. If you don't have a high ticket service or something else that they can buy afterwards, you're probably not going to make a lot of money on your book. In fact, I don't like to work with people who have nothing. Yeah. But if you have a business and it takes people a while before they're going to hire you for the most expensive thing, the book is the best tool to shortcut that hiring process, the sales cycle, and you also get paid for it. So you sell more sooner, easier, cheaper, faster for higher amounts, and you get paid to do so by selling copies of your book. If that's what you want, you need a book. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely love it. Once again, thank you very much. Um, do you have any last words for, for the audience, especially particularly for those people that are looking to leave their jobs and start a writing career? Best advice on success is this simple. Three words. Impress important people. Love impress it. important people. I love that, yes. Now, does that mean that the person themselves is the most important person in the world or industry or that they are famous? No, it does not. But it does mean is that there are people who deem that individual important. And so that person being aware of the fact that they have shareholders or customers or subscribers or followers that they need to make sure their personal brand is protected for. If you can impress them, they will talk and people will listen and you will get gigs and you will get referrals and you will make it. Brilliant. Absolutely love that advice. Once again, thank you for your time. As for the viewer, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you on the next one. Take care now. Bye-bye. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot if you would please rate and write a review. Please also subscribe so you get notified anytime a new episode drops. Thank you for tuning in. Now go out and attack your Minotaur.